Howdy, folks. Today, we are going to talk about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. I hope that you are following along with the series of lessons that we are doing. In the event that you are not, we are talking in the context of a child of God, a Christian, specifically those addressed by Peter as Gentiles who have been uh, scattered abroad, going through persecution, how they were being instructed to submit to those that are in authority over them, to governors, uh, to civil authority, if they are servants, to submit themselves to their masters, not only to those that are good, but also those who are froward, which if you look at that word, it means to be perverse or crooked or untoward. Uh, when we look at that in context, we have been talking about how it is better to suffer as a Christian for doing the right thing than it is to do the wrong thing and to suffer for that. Endurance, in that case, doesn't reward us in any way, shape, or form. And then, last week, we talked about verses 21 through 23 and how that Jesus is an example and how to endure suffering, a just person at the hands of the unjust, language that we talk about in 1 Peter and we will see in chapter 3 and verse 18, for example. And we look at how he is that example, how in suffering, even though he did nothing wrong, there was no guile found in his mouth. He, When he was reviled, and what we talked about is he was vilified, he was reproached, he did not respond in like manner, he didn't threaten but he committed himself to the Father that judges righteously. We are still in that context, and into chapter 3, we will still be talking about submission and authority as we talk about the Christian woman who is married to the non-Christian man and how that Christian man still has authority over her. The context isn't changing. But what I want to do is isolate verses 24 and 25 because in the midst of this context, we get to think about the sacrifice of our Lord. And we get this moment where, again, it's in the context, but I want to pause us. I want us to think about whether you are a Christian or not. I want you to think about what Jesus did that you might have the opportunity of eternal life. How Jesus is the propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, meaning the atonement for our sins. And there he's talking to Christians, so he specifies, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't die just for a group of people who were predetermined to be saved. There's no such thing as the world sometimes believes that there is. He died for all to have the opportunity equal to be saved. Christians know this, and maybe if you're not a Christian, you know this too, that sin separates an individual from having a relationship with God. Now, sin is transgression of God's law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of law. And we could go into other details. We could talk about how in that next chapter, or not in the next chapter, 
but how in First uh, John, all unrighteousness is sin. We could talk about James chapter four, how in verse 17, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. We could even talk about the conscience and how somebody who in Romans 14, 23, where it's talking about authorized liberties, you can eat meats, you can observe certain days, so forth and so on. But if you do so with doubt, Romans 14, 23, he that doubteth is damned of eat because he eateth not of faith for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And we could break down sin in all kinds of areas, but we'll stick with the simplicity of 1 John 3, 4. And then, you know, and and future times, if you ever want to study that further, I'm, I'm always available. Sin, transgression God's law, separates. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. Here, in that context, the law of Moses is in effect. He's talking to the children of Israel. And it wasn't that God was incapable in some kind of physical manner, that the way we think about that, of hearing. But iniquities have caused a division, a separation between the children of Israel and God. And that's not just an Old Testament principle. We'll get to it in 1 Peter 3.12, but just for the sake of, of bringing this to your attention, it says, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Again, that's 1 Peter 3 and verse 12, and many verses that teach that, though that's not the subject for today. The reason for this is God does not have fellowship with those that are in darkness. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declaring to you that God is a light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Listen, in the Bible, there's not light, dark, and gray. There's light and dark. There's not righteousness, somewhat righteousness, and then unrighteousness. There's righteousness and there's unrighteousness. There's not children of God, stepchildren of God, cousins of God, children of the devil, stepchildren of the devil. There's You're the child of God or the child of the devil. It is clear cut in the scriptures, either or, not either or with all types of different steps and levels. In God, there's no darkness. If you're in the darkness... You don't have a relationship with him. And that is made clear in 1 John. It's made clear in 2 John. For example, 2 John in verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Our relationship, your relationship, my relationship with God is contingent upon our whole obedience, not just partial. If we offend at one point, we are guilty of all, James 2 and verse 10. So, Sin, that moment that you walk away from the light, that moment that sinner, your relationship with God has ended. What that brings about is a need for a way for that wall to be taken down, for that gap to be closed, for us to come back, for us to get back to him. Just imagine, visualize something, right? Imagine some major earthquake 
and the earth opens up and the person you love in the flesh most is on the other side of that crevice that just opened up. And as the earth opens up, you can't get from here where you are on the other side of this of this opening in the earth to the person that you love. And just imagine that gap is impassable. What do you need? You need some way to cross it, right? Some kind of bridge, some kind of way, some person that can do something. God made an Old Testament statement in Isaiah 43, 11. He said, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. We need some way to come back, some way to get back into that relationship. God says, I'm the Savior. So how he put that into effect is sending his only begotten Son into the world. In Titus 2, 3 through 5, we ourselves also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But after the kindness and love of our God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So whether you were all and entirely guilty of all types of sin or just one, there's a gap. You can't get back to the Father. He can't hear you. He can't see you. Again, like in Isaiah 59, 1-3, it's not an inability. It is your sins that have created that gap. God says, I want to bridge that gap. His side of that is I'm going to send the Savior into the world, my only begotten Son. 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and do testify the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So we got this massive problem that we've done, we've sent. You, I, I don't mean it. When I say we, I don't mean collective action. Your individual sin separated you from God as my individual past sin separated me from God. I need a way back. God says, here it is. Here's, here's my son. In this letter, they are Gentiles, right? 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we talked about that. In times past, they're not a people, now are a people which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. As Gentiles, they get it. And, and when you're reading through the New Testament, they get it in a way a lot of their Jewish brethren in the first century did not get it. Because a lot of their Jewish brethren struggled with this principle where they thought, we've always been God's people. We're always going to be God's people. You see that in John 8 in a, in a discussion that Jesus has with some Jews there where we be Abraham's seed, right? We're, 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 we're Abraham's seed. Like they had this idea that there's not a problem that needs solved. They thought there is not a need for a savior. Nothing has changed for us. Gentiles get a little bit better in the first century because they never had that relationship with God and they're looking for a way into it. When you're reading the book of Ephesians, it's spelled out very clear for, for the Gentiles and the congregation in Ephesus. That congregation began in Acts 19. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You hath he quickened. I'm, I'm just starting at verse 1. You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, the lust of our flesh, Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love, already he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, for by grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards, towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before it ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the, the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off, made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make of himself twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were far off, and to them which were nigh. And it's through him, folks, the next verse says, that we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Through Christ, Jesus is the way that the old law was taken out of the way because the old law separated you from Gentile. From early on, after Moses gave the law, the children of Israel were expected to go into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and destroy everyone so that there would be no intermarriages because the promise was to Abraham and through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God didn't want any contamination of that. He didn't want his children to learn idolatry. He didn't want them to intermarry. None of these things, all of which have been done away in Christ. But that law separated Jew and Gentile, created a division and to keep for God to keep his promise to the benefit of all mankind. That's done in Christ. Now, Jew and Gentile alike, that is Jew and everybody else that's not a Jew, can be part of the same body like we just read. With that all in mind, 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25 says, who his own self, and we're talking about Jesus contextually, verses 21 through 23, bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now return unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So the language Jesus offered to bear the sins in his own body. Similar language you see in other passages like Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The word bear, as it is used there in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, is also translated offered up or offer or offered. So think about this who his own self offered up or was offered for our sins in his own body in the tree. You see that translation in Hebrews 7, 27, where it says, talking about the difference between the priest of old and Christ, who needed not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins before the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So you see that language, you see how that same Greek word is used there. And, you know, that's the beauty of, of being able to look at how words are used and how they're translated. Sometimes you're going, well, what's that mean? And then you can look through how the Holy Spirit used that word and, and how it's translated into the language that you're studying the Bible in, in this case, English, how in the King James Version, Hebrews 7, 27, that same Greek word twice, it's Strong's number 399, how it's translated off or up. You can look at Hebrews 13, 15. 
by him. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks uh, to his name. There it's offer the sacrifice. James 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? And 1 Peter 2.5, right in the context that we are here, uh, studying from the chapter that we're studying from, he also, as lively stones, are built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So if you're somewhat perplexed by the word bear, remember how that word is translated throughout the New Testament and, and, and how it's used even in that same context to offer up. Jesus was offered up for our sins. Uh, you know, he, he took up, he carried how it's translated, how it's put into application to lift oneself up, to take upon oneself. He offered himself as a sacrifice. We're going to get to a text later in this lesson near the end where we're going to see very clearly that Jesus chose to go through and voluntarily offered himself that we can be saved. So we'll get to that. But to stay on point, Jesus was offered as the sacrifice for our sins, not by force. You know, the Romans uh, were the government used. The Jews were the will. But Jesus didn't, you know, get caught and couldn't do anything. We talked about that in our lesson last week. Had Jesus decided to fight being sacrificed on the cross, it wouldn't have been much of a fight. Here, remember last week, I used the point that Jesus uh, was able to rebuke the sea and the winds, and the sea and the winds obeyed him. I mean, who are we kidding? Mankind is not able to do to Jesus anything that he did not want them to do. So he offered himself up, Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ also have loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savior. That is very clear language. And he did so because the law of Moses could not do what Jesus did. We see that if you study the book of Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's spelled out very clearly. In Romans 8, 1 through 3, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin and the flesh. The law of Moses did not offer a sacrifice system. Again, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 wherein the sins of men could be forgiven beyond that annual offering and other offerings during the year. When Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Acts chapter 13 to the Jews, they said in verses 38 and 39, Be it known unto you, therefore men and brethren, that through this man, they're talking about Jesus in the context, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Those Jews needed to hear that because they wanted to hold on to the law of Moses. Christ offered himself that we could be forgiven, that we could be justified, 
That was not possible without the blood of Christ. And that didn't happen under the old law. It was the blood of animals that were offered as sacrifices. And that was not unknown. Now, it, it may have not been understood, and it may not have been accepted. But the information has been known since the prophecy in Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And, and just so you know, I, I'm not just saying that's a prophecy of Jesus based on some guess. I know there, there are preachers out there that say, oh, this prophecy means this, this prophecy means this. I, I don't do that. I know it is because when Philip was preaching in Acts chapter 8, and he joined himself to the chariot and talked to the Ethiopian eunuch. The text there reveals the language of Isaiah 53, and the eunuch did not know who, G who, who was being prophesied there. And he asked Philip the evangelist, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this of himself or of some other man. And Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. After that, the eunuch confessed Christ and was immersed in water because he had obedient faith. When we look at that, we know for sure Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, and Jesus was prophesied to be the sin offering. Now, there's something else in this verse that sometimes catches people off guard a little bit. The word tree. And there have been a number of times over the years that someone has asked me, was he killed on the cross or was he killed on, on a tree? Uh, I, I'm not really sure why people get hung up so often on somewhat meaningless points. This, this is, it, it is not a significant point. The word means timber a club, a stick, a tree, something of wooden substance. You can pull out your concordance. You can look up Strong's number 3586, and you can see that for yourself. Thayer's Greek to English lexicon, just the first definition is wood. So if, if you're reading this, you know, when you think about the language, he was offered up for our sins in his own body on the wood. That's what we know. He was nailed to something that was wooden. But other verses also lend this to be something that causes people to have questions. Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Acts 10.39 says, We are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem whom they slew and hanged on a tree. And Acts 13.29, When they had fulfilled that all was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Now, the Bible also says a cross. In John 19, 19, Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Colossians 2, 14 says, blotting out the handwriting ordinance that was against us, contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and plenty of other verses that say that as well. Listen, don't get hung up on this. It's a pursuit that leads to nothing because it doesn't matter. Jesus was nailed to something wooden. Now, unless you're 
a person of idolatry and you want to hang something around your neck or put something on some decorative thing and you want to try to get that right, which by the way is altogether wrong, it does not matter. What does matter is Jesus was nailed to something wooden. Whether that was the typical idea of a cross, I've heard people argue that it's a stake. I'm not going to argue one way or the other other than to say this. If you argue about this, you're definitely missing the point. It is not the object that Jesus was nailed to. It's the fact that he suffered and bled and died and was risen on the third day and is ascended into heaven on the right hand of God as our Lord and Savior. That matters. He was nailed to it. John 20, 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand in, I will not believe. That's Thomas saying that. They knew that Jesus was nailed to something. We know it's wooden. What it looked like precisely, I don't really care. I'm not going to argue it and I'm not going to spend time studying it. And you should not either. Because whether it was a stake or literally a cross and exactly what form he was hung from it in, uh, all we need to know is he was nailed to it. His blood was shed when that soldier took out the sword and plunged it into his side. And from that, Jesus did his part. And not just that, but all that led up to it and after it as well. But to simplify it, he did his part in bridging the gap where man could cross back over and have a relationship with God. That is what you need to focus on, where sinners can be saved. So the language in 1 Peter chapter 2 continues on. He bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, this right here, dead to sins. I love this point. You know, when we look at other contexts like Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mankind often feels guilt. And, and that's good. You know, guilt leads us to, like Job, he abhorred himself. Uh, when we're looking at what he did with his tongue, you know, you had an upright man, uh, one that feared God, one that eschewed evil, one that was righteous. And when you read through the book of Job, after he suffers through what Satan put him through, he opens his mouth in ignorance against God. He abhorred himself and repented in dust and ashes. Guilt has a part to loathe yourself. And that, that godly sorrow is necessary, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, to bring about repentance. But once we have our sins forgiven, if you are in Christ Jesus, whatever it is that you have repented of and confessed and had washed away is gone. You're dead to those sins. You have a part in that. If you back up in Romans chapter 6, know you not that so many of us as were baptized 
into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism and death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. When a penitent believer, and I'm simplifying it, there's more to it. If you've never ever been taught the gospel properly and you're listening to us, we need to talk, okay? Don't just take this as, oh, that's all I need to do. There, There is, is more to it. Jesus commanded the apostles to go and preach the gospel to the world and they needed to believe the gospel and be baptized, Mark 16, 15, and 16. Baptism is just one part, okay? Just one part. There are other words and other things that you need to know, and, and we need to talk about your individual situation. But once washed in water, like when we look at Paul recounting the conversion that he had in Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, where he's talking about Ananias talking to him, now why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Your sins are washed away. They're gone. You're clean. You're whole. You're pure. You're sinless. You're perfect. You're all those words because of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you go out and you take the new person that you are and you corrupt yourself. Romans 6, 1 and 2, that same context. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. There's the answer to the question. And then he reasons. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Being dead to sin. You're clean. You're pure. You have, you know, in the world people will say, I wish I could have a fresh start. I wish I could do it all over again. In Christ, you get the absolute meaning of a fresh start. All the things you have done, said, thought, practiced wrong in times past are gone. Now you got to keep it up. And that's what that verse goes on to say. We being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. Now there is your part of continuation there. You're dead to sins. Come back to Romans chapter six. We've talked about you know, verses 1 through 7 and verse 11, if you go down to verse 13, it says, Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In Christ, you are a new creation, or as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, now listen, uh, let me pause here for a moment. There's a lot of religious groups out there that'll tell you get into Christ by this, by this, by this. The Bible says, for as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You get into Christ, not by baptism alone, because it's nothing alone, right? I mean, there's, there's 66 books in the Bible. If you think it took God 66 books to tell you to do one thing, you're ignorant. But if you're in Christ, that is, through means of baptism and all that has to happen before that, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Think about that. That's wonderful. That's the fresh start. Meaning all your sins are forgiven. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. 
In Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father, which had made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and had translated us in the kingdom of his dear Son, and whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And 1 John chapter 2, if we had kept, we, you know, we talked earlier about verse 2. Verse 12 says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Forgiven, gone, remitted. Very simple. And if you take that very simple point forward, Christ has given you the means by which you become righteous. After that, it's up to you to continue therein. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. In the next chapter, chapter 3 and verse 7 of 1 John, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. That's your part. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. In fact, we're going to talk about that in our very next point. Keep it up. Jesus says, I've made you a new person. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, all involved. We've seen the scriptures that tell us that in this very lesson. You're a new creature, a new creation. Clean, whole, fit, sound. It's like this. Mom and Dad bought me these brand new clothes. Don't go play in the mud. Don't be an idiot. Don't take what is clean and make it dirty. And that is you. To the next point. To the next point. By whose stripes ye were healed. This was hard for me not to make it an hour-long point in itself. You know, just to, I just want to go come back to this illustration. Mom and Dad bought your brand new outfit. I don't, I, you know, I've had three children. You buy them something new. And sometimes it's like, couldn't you just keep that clean for 10 minutes? Could Why'd you drop it? Why'd you do this? Why'd you, right? It's like, come on, man, right? Or if you don't have children, you've bought something. Maybe you purchased a vehicle. And it's brand spanking new, beautiful, shiny. You know, you pull it out of that dealership. Wheels are sparkling, everything else. Next thing you know, you see that storm cloud pop up on the horizon. You're like, oh, no, it's going to get dirty, right? <laughs> oh, what, what, what? Let me get it to the garage real quick. I have to park my vehicles outside, so I don't have, I don't have the luxury of keeping them clean by parking them in a, in a garage. And in El Paso, it doesn't matter anyway. There's so much dust and dirt blowing around, it'd get dirty in the garage, too. I want you to think about this. What did Jesus go through to make you clean? How high is the price? Isn't that what this statement does for us? It makes us think about the price. We're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. No, that's not right. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You're bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You're purchased. You're bought with a price. How high was that price? By his stripes. By his wounds. John 19, 34. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. I think I said sword earlier. Here you get, it's, it's a spear. Folks, think of the price. 
John says to the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We've covered this. It's why I did not blow the point up. We've talked about it in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from mere vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. But man, I really want you to think about it. It is so important to think about the price that, that Christians do it every first day of the week. We come together and in a, a figure of speech called a syndectiche, a part describing the whole, on the first day of the week to break bread, the language is used there, it describes the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted it, he took the fruit of the vine and he told them in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the mission of sins. Every week, faithful Christians assemble and partake together of that memorial to remember. It's that big of a point. God wants you to go through a physical act that will draw your mind back to what Jesus did. When Paul talked to the Corinthians, he reminded them about that night in which the Lord was betrayed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And he reminded them in verse 24, this do in remembrance of me. In verse 25, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. In verse 26, as oft as ye eat the bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Remember the price that was paid. From there, Peter uses a simile. For ye were as sheep going astray. Look, as sheep going astray draws an image. That's the point of the text. Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're going to talk about that. Gives the idea, gives you a picture, right? Sort, sort of like when you read in Psalm 119, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant for I do not forget thy commandments. It may not be such a wonderful illustration for people today because many of us have never shepherded sheep. <laughs> but a lot of us have had children and we've all been children. That You have a child wandering away from the parent, right? The parent does his or her part and seeking after, yelling, come back here. God's done that. He's gone a step further than that. He sent his son to bridge the gap. Like as sheep going astray. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, Jesus has a perspective I want you to hear. Jesus went all about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad. Here it is again, another simile. As sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore, Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus looks on them. He has compassion on them. Nobody's leading them back. 
And as a shepherd, he has a mindset. All of Luke 15 shows us this. I'm just going to use the first seven verses. There drew unto Jesus publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were murmuring. They said, this man received the sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he had found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. That's the shepherd's mindset towards the lost sheep. I don't know about you, but I am so very thankful for that. Because man is often vengeful and hateful and doesn't want to see people change, doesn't want to see restoration. They feel personal injury and they want to forever punish somebody. Now listen, there is a forever punishment. That's not the point of this lesson. point of this lesson is there is a merciful Father, a merciful Savior, who says, Sinner, come home. Thus, Peter reminds these Gentile Christians that they were as sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of their souls. In 1 Peter 5, we're going to talk about Jesus as a shepherd again, where Peter is not just an elder, we learn here, or not just an apostle, rather, we learn here that he is an elder. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 4 so that you can grab it all a little bit in context. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but by being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The chief shepherd that restores and rewards. I tell you something. It's amazing too. It's a, it's just, it's a profound point of truth. Man causes a gap. Each individual person sins and their relationship with the creator is severed. Jesus says, I want to be the shepherd that brings them back. And it doesn't stop there. Do you realize that he's the only begotten of the father? He's the son. And as the son, this language is used in Romans 8, 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be we suffer with him, we may be glorified together. Jesus says, I'm not only going to restore you to my father, but I'm going to share what he has given to me with you. That makes him the great shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20, the God of peace and brought again the dead, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood, the everlasting covenant. I want, I want you to hear 
our Lord's mindset as the good shepherd. I, I mentioned earlier, we're going to get to this. It's in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus is speaking. He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. And when he put forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And know my sheep, and have known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus says, I have authority. It's from the Father. The choice to lay down my life for the sheep. Folks, he did it. That makes him the great shepherd, the good shepherd, our amazing Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. How can that not move you? How can that not move you to want to spend eternity forever with him? Not running away from something. Not, not I don't want to go to hell. But running to eternal life in our Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, hear those words. Let them sink into thy mind. That is love. That is what you ought to want to spend forever with. That is how Jesus suffered at the hands of unjust men, leaving us the perfect example in how to endure. And he returned to the Father, heaven being the goal even for our Savior. Our next study is going to pick up right from here. It starts with the word likewise. Looking back on everything we've been covering, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. I thank you so much for listening. 
I hope you loved thinking about our Savior as much as I absolutely loved talking about it. I will leave this to you to take, to digest, to think upon, and I hope you will act obediently upon the will of our Savior. If all goes according to plan, I'll be back on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Till then, goodbye.